Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast, where we talk about all things related to athletic performance, rehabilitation, and wellness. My name is Dr. Michael Falk, and today I'll be hosting this episode, and I'm joined by Rob Lamb. Rob and I dive deep into ACL rehab, talking about things like rate of force development, neuroplasticity, and the importance of ACL bridge programs to facilitate return to play. If you're interested in ACL rehab, either as an athlete going through this or as a clinician that works with athletes, you're going to love this episode. Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Rob Lamb. Rob is an athletic trainer and a strength coach in the Seattle area at a clinic called Tangelo Health. Rob specializes in ACL rehab and especially has a passion for ACL bridge programs. Rob, welcome to the show and thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Michael. I'm uh, flattered to get the invite. You know, I've been following you guys on, on social media for a while and really always enjoyed the content that, that you both have put out. So, you know, I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I, uh, I appreciate it. We've like the pages kind of taken off. I remember my wife and I started it and we were super busy with an infant, very inconsistent posting at, you know, a couple people that followed us and it's kind of steadily, steadily grown, which has been fun to see. Nice. Um, so I always like to just start with a little bit of background. Um, how do you end up where you are now and, and with your interest in the ACL rehab? Uh, where I am, I, so I grew up in Missouri. Uh, I went to Kansas for undergrad. Uh, and then that um, was, you know, in the ATC program there and uh, went on to be a grad assistant in New Mexico. I was lucky enough to work with some, you know, the high the men's soccer program there for two years. And I uh, worked in collegiate athletics after that for another four years in Texas and, uh, and you know, kind of always thought I'd stay in that field and some things I really miss and enjoyed about that. And I'm sure, you know, as an ATC, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's a grind. And so uh, decided I enjoyed other things about life <laughs> as well. And so um, moved out to Seattle, had a job opportunity out there and it was a, it was a city I wanted to get to. So uh, wound up, and you know, how I got into the ACL rehab is, uh, it was, I don't know, it felt like a little bit by accident. Um, knock on wood, I have not torn my ACL myself. I feel like announcing that publicly yeah. is probably not a good idea. Yeah, I'll um, knock on wood for you. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm too old playing basketball now, so we'll see. Um, but uh, it was kind of by accident. I was working, like we were talking earlier, I worked in a partial clinic setting and then partially at a local high school. Um, I was lucky enough to work with a really, really great physical therapist um, in Ben Fidua. I'll give him a shout out. Um, and then the, uh, the high school we had, we actually hired strength coaches for area high schools. And so I was also lucky enough to work with a really sharp strength coach there named Jordan James. And we had just seen a handful of ACL, you know, uh, ACL rehabs come through that were all high school athletes. And, you know, we'd seen a, a few come through at the high school that were different clinical settings that we just kind of thought were mismanaged. And, um, you know, that was something that we wanted to improve on. And so, you know, it just kind of started as a, as a conversation. Um, you know, a lot of these kids coming out being a little bit confused as to, you know, when they're running out of PT visits and they're kind of in that weird middle range and, Hey, I've been told I can go back to play in two months, but I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing in the meantime. I don't feel great. I don't feel confident. So, yeah. you know, it started as a conversation and then I was lucky enough that a, a parent of one of the ACLs I had early on, um, who, um, 
worked really well with us and she you know they opened up a, a performance gym and so i was lucky enough to run my kind of acl bridge program out of there until last year when it got sold so yeah. um that's and that was four years ago and you know i was kind of just <laughs> i would have liked to think i was i was good at my job four years ago and looking back now it's uh it's been quite the process quite the learning process so i know it's always good though you don't want to every time i look back and like I hope my practice has involved in four years. But I also <laughs> hope that it's not like a total scrap. You know, that there's yeah, there's still yeah. some of those key principles, and it's gotten better. But um, you know, it, it never was it never was terrible to uh, to begin with. <laughs> yeah, just better than most, hopefully. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 exactly. Where uh, where in Texas were you? Uh, was it uh, so? I was in San Antonio at University okay. of Texas at San Antonio. Worked oh, perfect. Track and field and soccer there. Yeah, I grew up in Dallas, and then I got on the wrong plane and ended up in Wisconsin. And <laughs> hey, man, I like I like Milwaukee. Milwaukee's a fun city. Uh, I I love it now. Yeah, I I love it. There's I distinctly remember one night in college. Um, I got back from Christmas break. I was going to get Kidoba, and it was like negative twenty seven, snowing sideways with whatever winds. And I got home and I called my mom. I'm like, "What am I doing?" Like. You know? <laughs> Keep me warm here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. All right. Let's start diving into talking about ACLs today. So give a, give me just like a 20,000 foot view of what of the ACL rehab world kind of from your perspective, what you think we're doing well, what you see done poorly. Um, where do you think we're at? <laughs> um, that's a good question. Um, you know, after four years of having this program, um, you know, it seems like we, when I say we, I guess anybody involved in that process, whether, you know, healthcare provider, ATC, strength coach, uh, skills coaches, I think because there's been so much research done and I think it's, it's openly shared now. I think every, we're closer to having everybody on the same page as to what needs to happen for athletes to return to play safely. Um, so I think that's a good start, but I think, you know, I don't think we do a great job of communicating how to get there. Yeah. Uh, the, the context around how tough it is to really return to a full workload. And so I think even just rewording it for return to play, you're just, you know, you're just getting back to return to training first. Um, so I think that's, I think that's part of it. Uh, you know, looking around social media, there's a lot of claims about you know, how to prevent injuries and a lot of methods that aren't necessarily placed on any principles or basis or anything. And so I think before anybody, before we worry too much about that, we just got to make sure that everybody's really, really good at the basics. Um, seeing how many athletes out there that get cleared to play who haven't been tested and run through any kind of battery of testing. So I think to be better, just everybody's got to be able to do the basics first. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I'd love to hear that too. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I I loved where you went right off the bat with talking about everybody involved um, and that it is really a team process and, um, you know, it can't just be one individual. And even though we have, we have more space and more equipment and more um, like the ability to do more return to place type, activities in with our setup we still can't mimic practice like we still right. can't you know if i'm beating them in a drill we're, we've got a long way to go if i'm <laughs> you know yeah. if I'm, if I'm unathletic <laughs> yeah. and, and running by them and we can kind of fake stuff but it's 
we can't, we still can't do it. You've got to get that individual coach, team coach, whatever the case may be involved kind of throughout this process. Um, I see, I think it's interesting. I've talked to a couple people around the country about this and I think it's interesting just some of the differences from place to place. Um, you know, we still, I think here it's getting better. The idea of waiting for nine months, but we still, we still have doctors telling um, people or, and, and other providers, PTs and stuff saying six to nine months. We're like, <laughs> I, you know, I'm like nine to 24 months, you know, but yeah, right. <laughs> 24 months, I'm pretty yeah. sure you're going to be back and playing with no restrictions. Um, we still see, we still see people told by doctors or other providers that knee extensions are dangerous. Um, we still see a lot of these, these myths that are out there. And so I think we're getting better, but I don't think we're there yet. Um, I still think it's being dictated by insurance largely where it's 16, yeah. 16 weeks, 20 visits. Here's a piece of paper, gradually go back to your activity. Good luck. And yeah. um, that's, that's just not, that ain't going to get it done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Having everybody on the same page. I like that. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's dive into a couple of things right off the bat here. Um, for our non-medical listeners, it's a little bit of a big term, but there's a phenomenon after ACL surgery called, called arthrogenic muscle inhibition. Um, it's basically a fancy way of saying that when they cut your knee open or your knee swells, your quads don't want to work as well for a little while. This is something that can be challenging. It can linger for different amounts of time for different people. I'd be curious if you have any favorite strategies that you like to use to address this. Um, yeah, uh, I wish there was a simple answer to that too. And this is something I've delved into a little more the last couple of years. I, I think there's a fine line to walk here and it's something I've probably tried to rush in the past or big, you know, confused as to like, why, why is this person's quad not taking off here? Things like that. But I always have to remind myself it's, it's a protective mechanism for the knee. It's there, you know, it, it happens for a reason. And, um, I think it's different for me cause I, I don't see athletes early. Usually I don't get them until, you know, 12 to 24 weeks on average, sometimes much later. And so swelling isn't usually the issue, uh, as far as AMI goes when I get them. So I have to remind myself it's, you know, there's a, other reasons why we think this may happen. Like, uh, you know, you got a new graft in there that's probably in a slightly different position, graft maturation, um, changes in cortical brain levels, uh, or even like just fear avoidance issues. And I'm sure that, you know, drives nervous system responses and things like that. So, uh, or, or even like the chondral surface being sensitive. So I think some of the stuff I like to do early on is um, make sure I measure quad torque early and often and just to drive some goals for the patient and then think back to other reasons like if you know if it's maybe the joint surfaces are sensitive i like to find ways um to load heavy early whether that's more even if it's just rdls or something that's not going to irritate that knee um more hip dominant things heavy carries things like that um and then you know i other than that, I think uh, like moving past and some of the you know past early stages, even using things like a metronome uh, and doing cadence work, um, I, I find helps a lot just as far as giving them something else to focus on, um, giving them a, you know an outside source to focus on instead of just internalizing what their knees doing all the time. Yeah, I think that's really good advice, and it's like. 
I mean, I don't want to say these, these patients aren't fragile because like we can't do dumb things. <laughs> like, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but th- I do think at times we do, um, they do get treated like with kids gloves all the time where it's like, well, we don't want to, we don't want to hurt them. You know, we don't want to, yeah. we don't want to disrupt anything. And and it's like, you know, have you sat in an orthopedic surgery? Have you seen how much they like jerk and pull on the knee like, <laughs> yeah. before they even suture them up? But, you know, yeah, we have to be cautious, but it's not going to, we're not going to look at their knee and, and throw a weight on their back and their knee's going to explode. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. And thinking about, yeah, I think we know a lot more about graft strain now and what's, you know, walking downstairs and squatting is, you know, putting as much strain or less strain than doing knee extensions, things like yeah. that. So. I'd be curious um, to get your perspective on this. Cause this has been something that we've been struggling with or talking about as a staff a lot. Cause we have, we get to see people in, in two ways. We will see people right off the bat, right after surgery um, and get to do their rehab from day one through nine months when they go back. And that's our preferred way to do it because we can kind of be involved with what we're doing at every step of the process. But we will also pick up people because of the way that our clinic set up, that they go to an insurance-based clinic to use up their visits for the first 16 weeks. And then they'll come to us after 16, 20 weeks, kind of similar to what you're talking about. From your perspective, have you seen a difference between um, patients that have trying to think about how to word this delicately, but essentially patients that have had like an appropriate rehab progression early where they've done knee extensions and uh, early quad activation from early post-op versus patients that largely didn't address knee extension that you pick up at that 16 to 24 weeks. Have you seen like a, a very noticeable difference in how they progress for the rest of their rehab? Yeah, for sure. And I think it helps when I get people from providers that I know, you know, it's yeah. easy to communicate with them. We're on the same page. Um, I think one addressing people are told different things, obviously. So being on the same page, oh, I've been told I wasn't supposed to do knee extensions. Um, I, you know, nobody's measured my quad strength, but I've been running for three weeks and my knee feels terrible, you know? So yeah. Yeah. And I had a, I had a really a good example of this, uh, a few months ago, I got somebody, same thing, maybe seven months out. Um, she had, you know, air quote, uh, passed all of her return to play testing. So at least they did something. Good. Uh, yeah. She's a really high level soccer player, ex gymnast, like really good athlete, very strong. She's, you know, and she's filling me in with what she's done exercise history wise. You know, I lunge, I split squat, here's my weights. And then I'm like, okay, you know, let's, let's take a, and you know, let's, let's measure some, some torque. And, and she was like 70%, you know, limb symmetry there. And so yeah. I think that, you know, that's finding a strategy, you know, that she's such a good athlete that she was able to train around it without letting her quad do its job. And, uh, you know, and she felt okay with that. So it was hard to like dial it back and say, I know you've been doing all these really difficult things, but let's, let's change the strategy a little bit and we got to go back to some basics. So it's hard to reel people in like that. 
Yeah. I mean, one of my wife's sayings from one of her mentors is uh, that athletes are the best liars, cheaters, and stealers uh, around, <laughs> you know, like they're very, they're so goal oriented. It's like, here's this task that I'm giving you jump this far lift yeah. this weight. They, if they practice enough, they're going to find a way to accomplish that task, whether it's how we want them to or not. And sometimes it's visibly obvious, but with the really good ones, you're like, yeah. man, that looks awesome. And yeah. it isn't. <laughs> yeah. Which I guess is why, you know, hop testing and things like that has, has been, uh, I don't want to say vilify, like it's not demonized, but it's, you know, it's, it's not the end all be all obviously. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that's, uh, I think that's really interesting. And um, I think those are good strategies. It's kind of what we found too. We get some kids that they've never, we'll get them at 16 weeks, something like that. Um, they'll have run in an alter G for eight weeks and um, never done a strengthening exercise. Never, definitely never done a, a seated knee extension. And if we're lucky, they've at least done some type of lunging, but my, our perception and our thought process behind this is, is by this point in time, when we get them at that four or five month mark, let's say it was six to eight weeks before surgery that they didn't really do anything. And they learned how to function without really having a quadricep muscle and they had surgery. Now we're four or five months and they've learned how to do this. And now we're trying to restore that muscle, but everything else that we want to do, they're using those kind of compensatory learn patterns. And it's just like, it's been pulling teeth in a lot of cases. Um, and it's just like groundhog day. Like you just go in hammer knee extensions again, again and yeah. again at the end. Of, I mean, we do other stuff too, but like the end of every session, yeah. they're like, seriously, this actually like this again. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> until it gets better. Like that, that is what it is. You know, treat your quad like a bodybuilder for these next, yeah, however many weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it just has been, it's been hard in some of those cases and, and knock on wood, I don't want to say it's perfect, but it just seems like the kids that we get right after surgery that, and that we're able to, you know, we're doing knee extensions of some form or fashion early and we're, we're teaching them about those quad avoidance strategies and we're not, we're doing our best to not let them fall into that or choosing the right exercises where they're not prone to use that. Um, it just seems like it's not as hard. Like it, it still might take time. It still might take yeah. seven, eight months, but it, there's like consistently progress. We don't just hit this roadblock. And that's what we've been seeing with some of these athletes that we don't get as early. It's just like, we, we get to a certain level and it just, just stalls. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. The, the quad stall. It's yeah. Um, well, you mentioned alter G treadmill. So, I'm, and I don't have access to one, so I don't have to worry about making that decision. Um, we don't either. Okay. What, what, what are your feelings on, on using one? Is that kind of the same thing? You think athletes are going to come up with some compensatory strategy to, I mean, I think, um, my thing with it is always why I, like, I don't have a yeah. problem. I have a problem with it. Um, if it doesn't cause swelling or pain, it's just, um, at why and, and at what cost of something else? Like, right. Yeah. You're taking up time for other things. Yeah. Right. So if it's something that, Hey, at the end of your session, like we did an hour of strengthening and we hammered everything important and we've got 10 or 15 minutes and no one's using it. And I think it'd be a good way for you to get some cardio and I perfect. I don't have a problem with it. We just moved into a facility that has an underwater treadmill. Yeah. Um, we haven't used it yet, but we, we might, I, you know, we haven't, we haven't <laughs> gone there, but it just, uh, 
what I'm seeing is it's substituting for more important things. And it's like this big goal to get them running. And like what you said, the knee hurts and swells. And I'm of the mindset that I'm not convinced that getting into a jogging progression is that important for an athlete that wants to go back to team sports. Like, right. It's a big mental goal. And I get that it's like the next step, but I'm kind of yeah. like, why I would rather get you into a, some type of low level kind of plyometric activity, some a skip, some, some yeah. of the other things and progress that. And then, Hey, eventually we're going to be able to run, but like, well, actually we're not going to all out sprint, but we'll go run some tempos and, and actually run rather than just go and, you know, jog on a treadmill for 10 minutes to pat ourselves yeah. on the back and said, we did it. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's kind of my take. So yeah, nice. that's something we, I, I invest in a lot of technology and our, some of our ACL kids, you know, joke cause we have a K box and force plates and some of this other yeah. stuff. The alter G is, it's a great tool. We, we love the Woodway guys. We use Woodway treadmills and all that. We, I just, it's not something that's uh, been a motivator for me. Yeah. Agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's uh, move on. So um, kind of talked about basic force production, the important, importance of restoring that, especially through the quadriceps. The next big thing that we see, and I know just following along with you a little bit that you find important is rate of force development or how quickly um, that quad muscle is able to uh, work and, and create force. What are some of your um, favorite strategies for restoring rate of force development and why do you think it's so important? Um, yeah, I think especially some of the literature now coming out where, you know, rate of force development can lag for, you know, 18 to 24 months, even if the athlete's been back playing for a full season. So, um, you know, I don't know what the interventions are like in those studies. So, um, you know, maybe that's important, but to look, look into the details of that, but I think that's where like metronome work early on can help before they're able to do anything too explosive um just from the standpoint of helping any like altered motor output or you know differences in excitability or anything like that um i mean i think actually listening to your podcast with uh i'm gonna uh butcher his name here sorry uh dr sushamel yep Sucamel. on rate of Sucamel, sorry yep. okay sorry about that yeah, no that's okay um I think one thing that you guys mentioned that I really liked was, and this is nothing to do with ACL rehab, going back and forth in the sports performance world of do I do Olympic lifts with my athletes or not, regardless of what your feeling is on that or anybody's feeling is on that. You know, if, if you do teach them these things, then those are just more exercises that you have to choose from, you know, that you've got as a, as a tool for them. And so, I think early on, even just doing things like snap downs and absorbing force. And like, I like to do a lot of really light, high intensity med ball work, um, low load, high intensity, but I think it depends on the athlete. It depends on their training history and what they've been exposed to. Cause it's hard enough to get the athlete back to what they were like prior to their injury, much less trying to teach them how to, you know, barbell high pull or snatch or anything yeah. like that they've never been exposed to it before so no absolutely and i think that's so i think that's so important too because i mean when you look at i mean statistically the highest risk population for this is um young high school females and some of them have great training history and have, have been in the weight room before and and 
in my opinion, it, it makes that rehab so much easier because they know how to squat and they've been used to some of the stuff. But some of them have literally almost never set foot in a gym. And so now you're trying to learn these movements through these compensations with in a painful condition, like just adds a whole nother element to, to their rehab. And um, I think it makes it much harder on the provider side. Yeah. I mean, I've made that mistake of not asking in the past and, you know, we, we try things that they haven't been exposed to and maybe they've never touched a trap bar before and I've flared up low backs before because they're just not used to that movement. But so I think it, you know, I think sometimes it's as simple as picking things, exercises that they're comfortable with and they're strong with and saying, we're going to get rid of some weight and I just want you to move really quickly um, to start with at least. Um, I'm a big fan of like accentuated dumbbell jumps and using the hex bar and things like that just because it's less technical and it's less technical. I think it's probably going to drive intent a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a lot easier if you've had athletes who are uh, exposed to the weight room prior to this. So, yeah, we just uh, got a push band and uh, we're starting oh, nice. to play around with just even with just a little bit of feedback early on, on just uh, Hey, move it a little faster. Move, take that same way and just try it, try a little harder, <laughs> you know, compete against yourself and uh, yeah. make the number go up and, we don't care if it's not super accurate. It's more about just like that mental getting that competitive drive going against themselves. And yeah, that way it's been something fun and we'll see, we'll keep you posted. We're, we're having, we've got a PT student right now and then two PT students that start in a, a couple months. So their project is uh, going to be using the force plates and testing a bunch of jump variations just to nice. see, okay, what's the difference between this, you know, doing a dumbbell, weighted jump versus a trap bar weighted jump versus a band resisted jump, like just kind of playing around with some of this stuff and see if we can quantify it. We're not going to publish it like in a journal yeah. or anything, but just, just like helpful things for providers uh, for us to use. And, and we'll probably share it on social media once we're done with it. Good. I'm excited, man. I, I wish I had some more objective ways to test. I kind of in between uh, right now, I'm running out space at the high school. And so I don't have a ton of objective equipment to use the measure rate of force development. So the, the, <laughs> the two cheap versions that I've come up with that I, you know, I, I don't necessarily trust, but at least it gives me something where, uh, you know, I got a, um, what's it called? Tin deck, uh, little, um, uh, force cell and it's nope. supposed to measure rate, but it, I don't know how high it's rated. And then the other one is, uh, I use the my jump to app and so yeah. at least doing things like you know measuring a get back in slow motion and counting the um and counting the slides until they get off their foot at least it gives that athlete a little bit of feedback and you can slow down their strategy so they can kind of see what we're talking about yeah no it's interesting rate of force development on the force plates there's something there for sure because it's yeah. it's different between healthy athletes and injured athletes However, in both populations, it's so variable that it's almost not like totally usable as a truly objective. I mean, it's one of those things where you're looking at it and you're like, you show me, you show me two people and I'm, I could look at the rate of force development and be like, I bet this one has an injury and that one doesn't because they're yeah. no asymmetries. But then when you take that same person, you test them week after week after week, it's just 30%, 10%. 15%, 30%. And 
<laughs> you're like, I, I know, I know it's there. I just don't know how I can use this to track progress and say you're getting better over time. And if you don't have a baseline, so if you guys get people in for athletes in for uh, call it prehab before surgery, do you guys do any like try to test any force plate stuff on their at least even uninjured limb? Yeah, we do, and we try to get their un, uninjured uninjured limb um, strength testing. And our big push right now is uh, we're lucky. Our, we use Hawkins Dynamics, and their force plates are portable. So our big push is we're taking those out to every high school club, um, anyone that we can, and jumping athletes. Um, yeah. Everyone gets excited because we we pitch it as a performance enhancement tool. We're going to give them feedback on how they can get better and how they stack up against their peers, which is true, and we do. And I think yeah. it's valuable. We think that the most valuable thing is if they get hurt, we have something to compare it to. Yeah, um, and that's just nice. Just it's so much easier when we have the baseline. Um, it happened with one of our professional basketball players we had uh, that we've worked with in the past. He, we had his jump data from two years ago. Luckily, he didn't have an ACL injury, but he did have a knee injury, and um, and he he had just some baseline asymmetries. But it was such a confidence booster for him. He was he was still kind of nervous about it. It was such a confidence booster to be able to show him you're jumping. 10% higher with decreased asymmetry and like, yes, it's that you still favor one leg, but you did that before you hurt your knee and you're better than you were then. So, um, you know, just, it's so helpful for decision-making. Yeah. That'll be my first big purchase. If I get the chance to do that, some, some force plates. I, I think it's going to, I think the technology is going to keep becoming more available. I think the price will keep coming down. The systems keep getting better. They, you know, I think it's going to get there soon. All right. So one of the favorite sayings that I've uh, had and stolen from Eric Mira uh, is that it's not only the quads, but it's at least the quads. So, so far we've really talked about the quads, but, one of the most fascinating things that I think is out there in the ACL related world right now is surrounding the importance of the brain. And that this is really an, as much as it is a physical injury, it's also really a neural injury or neural change. And we're seeing some of these, um, you know, effects happen throughout the body. So what's your take on neuroplasticity and it's importance in ACL rehab? Um, yeah, I'd like, I like some of the work from uh, ACL study day group. I know Dr. Grooms, I, and again, I'm probably going to screw some of these names up. Meredith, uh, put, I probably messed that up. John Faltis. Um, and I, I, there are a bunch of other people in that group. So yeah. in the last couple of years reading some of their papers has helped me out a lot. Um, I think there's a lot of fancy tools around that, but I think it's really easy to expose kids without you know, with, with simple things, if you want to, um, you just find novel strategies to apply to anything. Um, I think some things that we use a lot, I think that's where, you know, I keep mentioning metronome stuff, but you know, I know there's a lot of research for, um, patellar tendinopathy, uh, to use that. And so I, I like using the metronome early on, um, even things, simple things like using a laser pin or, adding different things to react to, to shift the focus to, you know, just a more automatic motor control strategy. Um, so they're not internalizing everything. Um, but, you know, I, I like using um, not just visual strategies, but making sure that they can react to different auditory input, making sure that they can react to 
physical or contact, you know, getting them used to things like that. So, yeah. or even the Google um, goggles, I've used those in the past for people who aren't able to, you know, a little lower level or early on rehab, just to give them a different uh, visual input. So, yeah. Um, you know, it's and it's interesting reading through studies on that too. People who have been uh, returned to sport, and uh, you know whether that's I think twelve months, eighteen months, and they look back and even simple tasks like just balancing on a single leg and then having to, uh, you know, record a, a you know by memory a, a line of numbers or do some reaction timing stuff there's still a lag there so that's telling us that you know maybe we don't do a great job of applying those principles early on and throughout the entire rehab process yeah absolutely i remember reading uh dusty groom's first, like probably one of his first papers in jrspt five or six years ago it was the one that he went through it wasn't super it was, it was before he got into the functional stuff it was more just the principles behind it so it was all neuroanatomy and i was I was like, my brain hadn't hurt that long, that much since I finished my neuroanatomy course. Um, so there's, there's a lot of information that if you're a provider that works with this injury, the research is fascinating. It's really interesting. Um, it's, it's getting stronger. I'm, I like everything that you said. We use a lot of the same things. We'll even just early on incorporate, incorporate pretty silly, like cognitive dual tasking games, like playing word association games, uh, yeah. playing, you know, word matching, like what whatever I say, you have to start the next word with the last letter of my word. And just to get them kind of distracted um, in a simple way early. And then we try to focus on progressing, like kind of with the motor learning and, and just perception action coupling as we go more and more advanced in our agility drills and return to play progressions. We try to make the stimulus more and more specific to what it was. So uh, or what they'll be seeing on the field where, okay, it might start with me pointing in a direction or, or an auditory cue in a direction, but then it'll be me just taking a step in the direction. And then it'll eventually be like an actual mirror drill, but cause you know, getting them to react more and more specifically to another human being, like what they will in the, uh, in the, once they get back in the field. Yeah. And it helps to have other athletes in there. I really enjoy having multiple athletes going through the same thing that, you know, they can, they can play off of each other. It breaks up the monotony and rehab too. So. Yeah. That's something our model has always been one-on-one -on -one, just that's how we set our clinic up, but uh, it's something that our new staff member um, Brett is kind of looking at maybe getting a group setting, especially in the summer um, when kids have more time and, and trying to do a, a group like ACL program and get some of our, our athletes that have worked with us, they're all in similar time points together and kind of break it up a little bit and just have some fun. Nice. Yeah. I like that. So let's um, start to wrap up with a, just a couple of broad summary questions. Um, I was talking with one of the professional pitchers that we work with and he gave me the idea of this golden question. Um, <laughs> it's basically, what do you wish you knew from before? And uh, so let's, Kind of go through that. Um, so first, let's just start to other professionals or uh, rehabbing clinicians, medical providers. What's something that you wish you knew early in your AC in your career working with ACL rehabbing athletes that you now know? Um, yeah, you know, I think early on, <laughs> doing ACL rehab isn't scrolling through Instagram and picking out the sexiest exercise that I that I can for the athlete to try to appease them and make them think I know what I'm doing. 
Um, I think another thing that I wish I would have done early on was make my athletes take plan breaks from me. Um, you know, I, I, I sell sessions. So if I have somebody for 36 to 48 sessions, they get really tired of seeing my face. <laughs> and, uh, you know, by the time we get to that nine, 10, 11 month mark, it, you know, it's their, their motivation is, is a little different and they're just ready to get rid of me and I don't blame them. And so I think that's something I've, I've started to do. That's, that's helped a little bit. Just, Hey, you're doing well, go do something else for a couple of weeks. It doesn't have to be rehab related, you know, go play spike ball. Uh, you know, I'll see you in a week and let's pick things back up. Um, and that, and not worrying about, like we talked, we already touched on this, but, um, not worrying about running necessarily as a primary progression and not worrying about exposing them to jump tasks early on because it's, you know, you're going to have to dial things back if you do that with, you know, like we talked about earlier, just making sure that that quad's doing its job. So really getting back to the basics I know. Uh, and being good at that. I, I agree. I feel like that's been my path through my career was, early on you did the basics because it was sort of all you knew yeah <laughs> and you felt the pressure to like evolve and and do this and yeah. now I'm back to pretty much doing largely the basics definitely some tweaks I think doing the basics better um because a lot of it's just simple programming and and how you how you take the same exercise and make it harder without having them stand on a BOSU ball juggling while you throw <laughs> flaming knives at them that they have to die. You know? um, yeah. Yeah. How do you regress and progress things and why are you doing it? Why like critically think about why you're doing this with this athlete and yeah, not just okay. not for the look. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and sometimes saying, I mean, what you referenced with the jumping where it's like, you know what, we're not progressing because you can't do this well. So I don't care that we've done this same exercise for the last four weeks you're still not good at it. So we're, we're going to do it for another four weeks until yeah. you're, you're ready for the next thing, you know, earning your way to that next step, not just doing it because, Oh, I need to change something just to change it. Yeah. And I, I yeah, I wish I would have paid more attention to just basic strength and conditioning principles early on too. Yeah. I'd be, I'm curious how I like the idea of taking the breaks. That's something that we've utilized um, in some ways with some of our longer rehab, especially with our, especially with our professional athletes, um, if they're coming back from a major injury, cause they're with us four or five days a week, oftentimes. And that's just a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I've found I've, I, I'll look at a rehab schedule and try to build a plan for deload periods. But personally, I've found a lot of times it's almost just subjective where I can just, I can just tell as we're going through stuff that the focus isn't there, the energy levels down, it's like, all right, let's, let's take, you know, this guy needs, guy or girl needs a little time off. How, how have you decided where those breaks fit in and, and how do you go about that process? I think just, I have to plan it. Otherwise I either forget or it's too late and they're already tired of me. Yeah. <laughs> and we, I try to tell them that early on if it's, and it's every athlete's different. Sometimes I'll just get people who are like, I'm 12 months out and, um, you know, I, I don't feel perfect. I don't feel normal yet. So those are a little different, you know, we'll, we'll be very consistent, but, um, usually I just try to tell them early on, 
you know, I say, Hey, every four to six weeks, whatever the timeline may be, depending on how many sessions they're going to have with me, you're going to take a break from me. <laughs> and actually they're fine with it. It's usually the parents who are um, a little more nitpicky about that. You know, it's like, Oh, they gotta, they gotta stay in there and you know, they gotta work hard. And so that, that's tough to, to dial the parents back as well. Yeah. That's it. I think it was, um, exact Deshant or Deshant from TCU had a post the other day about the, uh, minimal effective dose, then the point of diminishing returns and then, you know, overstressing an injury. And, um, I sent it to a few of our, our players and was like, are you open to getting a tattoo? Cause I think maybe you should put this on, on. And I, I think for myself, sometimes, especially with this ACL rehab, I almost feel like I need it, you know, tattooed on my hand as I'm writing their program out where it's like minimum effective <laughs> dose. Everything over that yes. is, is you're just fatiguing them. And, and it's important to, um, you know, I've had it before where jump testing numbers on force plates will just plateau or level out or we'll clear them and they'll come back in two, three, four weeks to reassess. And the testing numbers are through the roof. And I'm like, I fatigued them. Like, even though I was trying yeah. not to, you know, we, we, we were pushing so hard to get them back and it, and it was honestly probably too much. I think that helps to have some sort of objective measure to, to decide when you take a break. And then you mentioned minimum effective dose and even the opposite, trying to find what your maximum recoverable volume is for, for your quad, you know, going back to like bodybuilding principles almost. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, I, I, I've talked about it with so many people that have come on about, I just feel like this injury in particular, there's you have hypertrophy, you have peak torque production, you have rate of force production, you have conditioning, you have speed and agility progressions, you have jumping, landing mechanics, you have neuromuscular control, you've got this neuroplasticity stuff we're talking about. And it's just, how do we, I, I struggle with it constantly. How do you address all these different things and get it into a session that the athlete can manage, the athlete can recover from and progress over time. It, it's hard. It is. Yeah. Especially when you only see people, sometimes I only see them twice a week and yeah. try to get something the third day. And you know, it's, you're seeing them four to five times a week i think it's easier to break those apart but yeah i have to remind myself i have to write out what my goals are every time and make sure i plug those in and manage variability you know like yeah <laughs> where do we plug new things in and why and you know sometimes i have to pull it back and say you know it's not necessarily that the athlete might think this session's boring and that's okay <laughs> exactly Exactly. And building that relationship, educating them, telling them why was yeah. the answer. And, um, I think, I think it's really important. I think it's something that builds trust with them and they, they learn from a lot. Yeah. Okay. Let's flip it around and talk about patients in, in particular now. So knock on wood, luckily you haven't had the, uh, you haven't had an ACL injury. Um, but what piece of advice would you share with any athlete, um, you know, person that's going through an ACL rehab? Um, I think, you know, make sure that you take your time to find a, a provider to help you or a rehab team to help you. Um, ask questions. Ask your surgeon questions. Um, sometimes if I get to meet with parents, like, you know, I get the luxury of saying, hey, yeah, asking these questions. If you go to your physical therapist, ask them these questions. So make sure that, you know, just even simple things like, hey, do you, you know, do you rehab ACLs and tell me what that looks like? Tell me what your success rate's like. What, what's my plan? You know, just sit them down and make sure that they have 
tell pretty quickly if they know what they're doing or not. Um, yeah. I would say that. And I think the other big one that sticks out in my mind is that everybody's timeline is obviously just different. And, you know, if you got a friend who's rehabbing at the same time and, you know, they're talking about how ahead of schedule they are, which is a term I'm sure none of us like to hear because there's yeah. no value in saying that, but yeah. um, you know, it doesn't mean anything at the moment because that's probably not where things are going to end up. And everybody's different. <laughs> yeah. I, we try to preach right along those same lines. Like it's not about who gets on the field fastest. It's who stays there the longest, you know? And I don't want to be the race to the first person back necessarily. That's not the, that's not the way, race I want to win. Oh, can you hear me now, Michael? I can. Yep. Okay, sorry about that. No, not a problem. All right. Well, that was, that was perfect. So let's uh, jump into a lightning round. This is just something fun that we do for uh, people just to get you to know you a little bit better. Um, you have a uh, favorite ACL exercise. Oh man. You know what? I, yeah. What did I, I learn this from, from Eric Mira, the, uh, from the, the soleus wall set. I, I tend to give that a lot because it's uh, you don't need equipment for it. Uh, you have no choice but to load your quad and your soleus and you can take a lot of things from that. I feel like athletes get a lot of feedback from that. So if I had to pick one, yeah, that's perfect. Okay. Favorite cup of coffee in Seattle. Oh man. Um, (laughs) Oh God. I can't say Starbucks. (laughs) Um, Does the Starbucks taste better there since it, you know, since it started there, it's, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> blonde. Um, just a blonde coffee, black. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Or, yeah. I like it. Simple. Yeah. That's Simple. perfect. I actually, for some reason, we, we played the Seahawks, I think almost every year that I was in, when I was in Green Bay in either the preseason or the regular season, it's always one of my favorite trips. Cause we'd get with the time change, we'd get there and have time to go for a walk usually. And so I'd like go down to, you know, the Pike's place market and there's that like the original Starbucks right across the street. And I, it's a cool, cool spot. Yeah, it is. It's kind of nice rolling out of the bed at, you know, nine 30 AM watching West coast football all day. So it takes up your entire day. <laughs> exactly. That's perfect. Okay. Uh, do you have a career highlight? A career highlight. Oh man. Um, hmm. I would say working with the New Mexico men's soccer team only because <laughs> looking back at me as a 23-year-old working with professional athletes and knowing that I had no business <laughs> and doing that and keeping my head above water, but uh, just being around those guys and being able to work with such a wide variety, you know, a lot of international players um, demanding coaches and I got to travel a lot. So I, I have, I have a couple old roommates that always joke around with me about, you know, they've never met anybody that has been to so many just trashy college towns from traveling so much. So uh, yeah. I guess that, that would be my highlight. Yeah. That's one of the, that's one of the great things about the athletic training profession is just getting involved in a team setting, getting all those experiences, those relationships. Um, you know, it's, 
not only do you know them just now you and I just get to meet people in a clinic setting, spend an hour with them in those settings, you spend all day plane flights, <laughs> travel, like you really get to build relationships, not just when you're working with them, but around the whole environment. Yeah. I missed that for sure. Yeah. Okay, Rob, I really appreciate your time today. I think we covered a lot of information that hopefully both other clinicians or athletes going through ACL rehab right now are going to be able to take a lot away from. Where can people find you online and learn more about you and what you're doing? Um, on Instagram, uh, you can find me just at ACL underscore Rob. It's uh, two B's, R-O-B-B. Um, my email is just Rob, R-O-B-B at tangelohealth.com. And then hopefully I got a website coming up soon. Uh, like I said, I'm just kind of in between facilities right now so uh when this new space hopefully gets built out soon then uh, i'll have a website hopefully so that's perfect i will get all that in the show notes so thank you again for your time tonight and thanks to everyone for listening we'll see you guys on the next episode wait a minute did you enjoy that episode with rob are you an athlete that's going through acl rehab and wants to learn more we're going to be hosting a webinar this Saturday, January 23rd at 10 a.m., where we're going to dive into detail on how important the first third of your ACL rehab is and give some specific tips that you can utilize to get a better outcome from your ACL rehab. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to our uh, website at www.kineticsmp.com or over at our Instagram, kinetic underscore SMP, to sign up and register. If you can't make it live, don't worry. Just register and we'll send the recording after it's done.